Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. I'm Kerr Lockhart, co-host and co-producer of the podcast. I want to apologize for the long gap since our last episode was posted. That was due mostly to circumstances in my life that precluded my collaborating regularly with Ben. Happily, we will be able to start working together again and plan to return to a steady schedule of shows. Luckily, this episode, originally recorded in late July of 2020 for release in August, is not especially time-sensitive. It is more of a step back, in which Ben reflects on his musical journey as a silent film accompanist with an emphasis on the instrumentation and how that shapes his creativity. I know you'll enjoy it. So now, without any further delay, here is episode 39 of the Silent Film Music Podcast, which we call Adventures in Sound. Greetings across whatever you listen to stuff on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, restorationist, piano tuner, DVD label, etc., etc. This is episode 39 I'm joined, as always, by co-producer and co-host Kerr Lockhart. Hello, Kerr. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm hanging in there. Uh, as we record this, I'm I'm preparing to get ready for for episode twenty of the Silent Comedy Watch Party. So, yeah. And and, and how are you holding up? Well, I think both of us are sort of startled at how busy we are in a time when people can't go places and do things and can't take vacations. It's ridiculous to have so many things to do. Yeah, I think uh, we're, 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 we're both people who sort of self-reliant, self-generate in terms <laughs> of what we do. And now that everybody is watching, making, and listening to stuff, so... The number um, of times you yeah. have to say, no, actually, I have a Zoom schedule at that time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. I, I have not... I have not spent this much regularly scheduled time with the same bunch of people uh, ever, uh, and it's it's it, but it's still it's still good. I did want to let everybody listening know about our our current theme music, which is uh, a song called "Those Keystone Comedy Cops." It's one of the first pieces of music that was composed and published to promote movies. And I think I'm going to say 1913 or 1914. It's by the same guy who wrote the song poor pauline and there's a, a part of it in the middle that, that almost sounds like the other piece but this is in the collection of the the museum of modern art ronald magliozzi over many years has assembled a huge huge collection of movie and movie promotion related sheet music and at some point a bunch of years ago i went through some of those tunes and the cover art is really fantastic uh, but it's a it's a nice little peppy piece, and I I recorded it, and uh, because I have not come up with a theme for the silent film music podcast as yet, that's our temporary track. <laughs> like the way they threw that music from Vertigo into the artist and forgot to change it. So that's what you're hearing. It's those Keystone Comedy Cops from I believe 1913. <laughs> Today's episode is episode 39, and as Kara was mentioning, with, with the decrease of live shows for me to have clips from for you, 
we're going to do something I'm calling Adventures in Sound, taking a, a, an inspiration from hi-fi demo records of the late 50s. Um, <laughs> there, you know, my, my journey toward being a, a theater organist, and I'm using air quotes just to be careful, um, <laughs> is, is something that grew out of playing piano for many, many years. And uh, it was something that happened uh, over a several-year period during the, the 2000 aughts. And so we'll discuss today and hear samples from works I did. I recorded on a few different kinds of instruments that I assembled or uh, got involved with on my way to playing an actual theater organ. One of the things that I discovered when I wanted to play the organ and learn how is you usually figure, well, the hardest thing is you know, you look at all those buttons and tabs and that's and you think of that shot in airplane where they just pan across the cockpit that goes on for many many seconds and your eyes roll back in your head but really the hardest thing was finding an instrument to practice on i don't know why it took me that long to get interested in learning theater organ because i had known lee irwin and he'd become a friend and a mentor in their early 80s when I began playing for films, and where I would go and visit him at the Carnegie Hall Cinema that had a Wurlitzer in it. Why it wasn't in, until the late 90s that I started thinking I should really learn this instrument, which was a combination of two things. One was Lee was around 90 at the time. You know, he would repeat himself when I would talk to him about a few things, one of which was he kept saying, there are no young organists, there are no young organists. The other thing that impressed me, he would say, he turned 90, he said, I'm not going to travel quite as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Really? I, I, okay. I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe there's a threshold issue. This instrument is issues even before that. A piano is really a percussion instrument, which overcomes it its percussive uh, natural state with this artificial device where you hold the strings open to ring longer and you control that with your foot. And uh, yeah. less proficient pianists, I'm raising my hand halfway, uh, <laughs> will, will lean on that very much, let that ring, and that will cover some deficiencies in finger technique. Um, but it uh, seems to me organ is uh, much more unsparing that way, since it's not percussion. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so... The, you know, part part of why I got interested in the organ was was what I was just talking about, and the other half was I was pl I was playing stuff. Uh, I was playing shows. I remember having a moment playing for a film at at the Museum of Modern Art, and hearing other instruments in my head, and looking down and seeing that I was at a ah, piano. And it yeah. is it is a per mm -hmm. it is a percuss it is a percussion instrument, and letting the strings ring out and using the Oh, the pedal in the middle, which has a fancy Italian name that I can't think of right now, uh, <laughs> is a way to add another color to it. But I, I just kept thinking of this over and over and wanting to expand this. And as, as my friend Bernie Anderson, another excellent theater organist, said, Lee Irwin was the hippest old guy he ever knew. Mm -hmm. uh, Lee dove into MIDI and sampling and analog synths in the late 70s and early 80s at a time when most theater organist wouldn't go near that sort of stuff and Lee had in his apartment and there's that theater organ set up with this rack of synths and analog and digitally an emu sampling synthesizer and keyboard he had a Roland Juno a Yamaha DX77 at least one other keyboard and then an old Moog that was custom wired 
to an organ pedal board. And he recorded some scores on this contraption. If you can find copies of the out-of-print uh, Nothing Sacred DVD that has a couple of Carol Lombard's silent comedies on it, th- those two silent comedies have scores that Lee did on this, whatever you want to call it. And then there is a quote-unquote new silent film called The Man Without a World, which was released a long time ago on video by Milestone Films, and I, I think it's still available for rental online. And Lee scored that film with this with this contraption. He never really explained it to me, and I didn't, kicking myself again, did not ask him to explain a lot of it and how it worked. Then he, he passed away in 2000. And what wound up happening is that his partner, Don Schwing, contacted me, and I wound up with a couple of Lee's old instruments. And then I had to go about figuring out how I was going to set that up here and where I was going to stow all this stuff and getting a, a keyboard stand that where I could stack a few things. But I began trying to, to assemble something that emulated what Lee had set up in his apartment. Getting back to the difficulty of learning to play the organ, I signed up to take organ lessons through Manus School of Music. And there's a, a little electric bolt when I could go practice there occasionally, but I wanted to be able to get my hands and legs on another instrument if I could. And it was really weird. I, this is back in the days of Yellow Pages, because it's the late, you know, the mid to late 90s. And I basically called every church in the Upper West Side. And half of them did not get back to me. And the other half said, oh, we don't do that. And so I thought, wow, I guess there's a, the hordes of organists banging your doors down to let, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't understand. And I'm sure there are reasons that make complete sense to everybody about letting somebody come in and use the instrument. But there was one church on Broadway and 94th Street that said yes. And so I, I got to go there on their schedule uh, and, and practice and to pay them back, so to speak. I would play an organ meditation at, at a mass every once in a while because a big part of learning to play the organ is just getting used to the physicality of it. What I did with this battery of synths is I created a name for it. I called it the Synth Org. I was able to convince one of the film curators at MoMA to let me do a bunch of shows with this instrument, a guy named Stephen Higgins. I did a few shows at MoMA with this rig of uh, maybe it was three keyboards and the pedals and all three different synthesizers and different bunches of sounds. Some of them are analog synth sounds and some of them are actual digital samples as they existed in the 90s so what i have here queued up first for us to listen to is a couple of samples i recorded just as a demo to burn onto a cd and mail to other theaters so here are two clips for that i recorded uh just to give you an idea of what this sort of hybrid of digital orchestral and synth sounds played as if it were a theater organ can sound like circa 2002.
A couple of samples recorded on what I call the synth org, a Frankenstein amalgam <laughs> of, of digital and analog keyboards and synths from the, the 1990s uh, put together to function like it was a physically a, and possibly sonically like a theater organ. If I can just walk back maybe a half a step and ask a kind of a simple question, but please, what is the distinction between a synthesized sound and a sample? That's a good question. Maybe people have heard the word in terms of from hip hop, where you take a little snippet of a recording and bring it into a, a track or a bunch of tracks that you're making. But it, uh, with an instrument sample, it's a digital rendering of that instrument, one note at a time. And different kinds of samples will capture different kind of attacks so that based on how hard you hit a key, you'll hear a trumpet sforzando, really loud, punched, or very soft. And same thing with piano. An analog synth is something where, if you, if anybody remembers, switched on Bach, where you have sine waves and sawtooth waves, a sound waves that have been manipulated in different ways to sound like or try to sound like actual instruments. And this is what the theater organ was trying to do back in the the 19-teens and 20s. That's really what it was. The the string rank of pipes does not sound like a violin section, but it's it's awfully close. And in a lot of ways, the string pad, as it would be called on a Roland Juno or an old analog synthesizer, doesn't sound exactly like a string section but it's awfully close. And a digital sample sounds a lot closer. And the advances that have happened in sampling just in the last five years since right this minute are, are just astounding. But such as it was in, in the 90s, it, it, it's, all, it's still a little on the, on the limited side. And the, the interesting thing about what Lee was doing is that there was a mix. You know, you would have the accompaniment figures played on an analog synth string pad, but the melody might be played on a bass clarinet sample and the bass would be some some kind of analog synth or digital sample of something and so i got used to the idea of choosing different sounds 
and groups of sounds the way one might if you had access to a theater organ. I live in New York City, and I tell this to people, and they can't believe it, people from California or parts of the Midwest. There are no theater organs to go practice on here. No, we tore everything down, and we, that's how New York is here. Yeah, you know, there's there's a four-manual Wurlitzer at the Beacon Theater, but it has not been maintained, I think, since the 80s. I saw one of the last shows Lee Irwin played there. It's still there. The stage has been built out over it. I know the blowers work, and every once in a while somebody fires it up. The amount of labor and cost that it would take to get it back, as well as combining that with the interest or lack thereof from the owners of the theater, uh, who are booking Jerry Seinfeld and Kevin Hart and all sorts of music acts into the space when they're open— the idea of repairing the world is, is not really at the top of their list. So the only way I could get my, my limbs on a theater organ was go, to go to Guttenberg, New Jersey, where uh, I would go and I'd visit with Jeff Barker and play the four-manual Kimball at one of the theaters that Nelson Page owned at the time. But it's a hike to go to 42nd Street, get on the dollar van, go, to, go, go across the bridge, play, and then come back. And uh, having an instrument in my apartment and the convenience of that certainly helped and then the next thing that happened is that i got a kurzweil keyboard and midi pedal unit to go together and the kurzweil pc2 has not only excellent digital orchestral samples on it it has samples of the boston symphony orchestra and you can layer up to i think four layer levels of instruments and also by having a midi organ pedal unit connected to it, it allowed me to play that instrument like a theater organ where I would assign a double bass section to be what the pedals are. So it was it was sort of like what the theater organ was supposed to do, only with actual samples of real instruments. And I began using that for shows and also for recordings for DVD labels. I was able to bring a single keyboard and put a, a bunch of saved patches and bring the, and bring the pedal unit. I did something at Amherst College where I played for Piccadilly. I listed this on my website as one of the things I, I used. And when I was contacted by Kino Lorber, well, it was Kino International at the time, <laughs> to score a, a slew of shorts for the Edison, The Invention of the Movies box set, they asked for a mix of solo piano and orchestral stuff or piano and other instruments. And... This was one of the first things I scored for DVD uh, for a major label after doing a, a few discs for a real classic DVD. And so it was a lot of work, but uh, it was a lot of fun also. And some of the scores I did for that set are ones I remember really liking. Whether other people who watched it appreciated that or not, I, I don't know. But being able to play with actual samples of pizzicato strings and strings and reeds and and winds and percussion uh, if you've heard the score i did for the spiders the fritz lang film which i think i plugged la at the last episode that was scored entirely with this rig so what we'll hear now are a couple of clips from scores i did for films on the edison set for kino international the first one i guess you could call it a chamber ensemble, though it's just piano and one or two other instruments from a film called How a French Nobleman Got a Wife Through the New York Herald Personal Columns. And then the second one is a much 
more full orchestral sound for a short called The White Caps. Thank you. 
couple of clips from two films I scored with the Kurzweil PC2 digital sample keyboard from the Edison, The Invention of the Movies box set for Kino International, a clip from How a French Nobleman Advertised for a Wife in the New York Herald, and another short film called The White Caps. Kurzweil, to be clear, is that a brand name? Kurzweil is a brand name of the keyboard, the way Korg and Roland and Yamaha are brand names. And I know Kurzweil, it's Michael Kurzweil himself, is someone who was very involved with voice recognition technology some years ago. But yeah, the Kurzweil keyboards are very good and everybody, it's like movie projectors. Everybody has an instrument or a brand that they're, you know, this so-and-so is a Roland person, someone else likes Yamaha and... Uh, I, you know, the range of samples that was available at the time on the various instruments, I, I really liked what was there on the Kurzweil. And if anybody's heard scores done for DVD or sometimes that shows by John Marsalis, he has the same instrument, still uses it. I think the only difference is I used a, a MIDI pedal unit for my bass, the bass notes. Because as Jeff Barker organist who passed several years ago but who I like I mentioned I, I got to know uh, and spent some time with when I was learning to play the organ he said you know the great thing about the organ and using the pedals for your bass notes is that it frees up your pinky <laughs> and if you imagine that uh, spoken in a, a uh, beautiful Blackpool accent because that's where <laughs> Jeff was from uh, or just just a, you know it's not and Liverpool isn't the same, but if you can imagine John Lennon saying that, you know, George Harrison, <laughs> you, but you know he said freeze up your pinky, and it was and it was a good way to get practice hitting the right notes with my left foot and and stuff like that. So this is something I I did, and I continued playing shows on piano, of course, but where I could, I would use this uh, instrument, and and I began using the quote unquote synth org less and less. I now had something as of 2003, that was a little closer and, and way less cumbersome than having a couple of friends help me load <laughs> all this all this stuff into a cab and unload it and heavy keyboards and stuff okay. like that. Yeah, not only a keyboard, but I presume racks to hold them. and Racks, oh, oh yeah, exactly. So okay. it was fun to get to do. I was able to bring that kind of a sound, a richer sound than a piano to venues and to offer it at least on my website, which is how Jim Henry found me. You mentioned being less cumbersome. I'm curious what your voice interface is. We're all familiar when we see an organist play, and if it's a pipe organ, he's pulling levers in and out, or if it's electronic, they have a rocker switch. What do you use as your interface for voice selection? Well, the the Kurzweil, one of the really nice things about it, and I'm sure all, all the keyboards do this now, is it allows you to save layers of presets and then multiple banks, as they call it. So you would have eight buttons or 10 or 16 buttons where, okay, if I hit button five, the left hand of the keyboard will be a string pad and the upper right hand half of the keyboard will play a bunch of woodwinds. And then also... This is all programmed with MIDI channel selection that my pedal unit that's going into the back of the keyboard is a double bass section. So you can save presets that way, much like the way you can on a theater organ or a church pipe organ. 
I would have these, and they're marked in tape in front of me. So pizzicato strings, uh, heavy strings, reeds, French horns, muted horns, reeds, bass clarinet, and the different combinations. And if you're really adept at it, you can toggle through the different banks. So you have one set of 16, and then you can toggle to the other set of 16 during a show, uh, which was really more than I could could handle. But the, the... I forget the number if it was eight or twelve or sixteen buttons on the Kurzweil, but you you have that option so you can switch back and forth easily and neatly. And the other challenge, as it is with anybody playing any kind of a MIDI instrument, is playing it in such a way that the people listening hear the instruments sounding like they really would if it was a real instrument. It's easy as a keyboard player to play it like it's a keyboard instrument. But you can play less notes. You have to separate the notes a little bit because of the way someone would play a clarinet or a violin. And it's a technique, and it takes a a bit of getting used to. The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in-classic film. When you pick up a copy of Steve Mass's delightful and comprehensive study of women in silent comedy, Slapstick Divas, who is that charming madcap on the cover? Alice Howell, who starred in her very own popular series of comedy shorts for different studios between 1915 and 1925. Her hilarious on-screen persona of a slightly addled working-class girl combined feminine delicacy with out-and-out slapstick roughhouse. The Alice Howell Collection, a two-disc DVD set, presents, for the first time, a comprehensive selection of Howell's surviving films for fans of classic and silent comedy to discover and enjoy. The 12 films on this set have been digitally restored from rare archival prints and feature new musical scores by Ben Modell. Under the Radar Magazine writes, The Alice Howell Collection is a remarkable effort from Undercrank Productions and a great service to the legacy of one of comedy's underappreciated leading ladies. We'd eagerly recommend this side-splitting set to any fan of Chaplin, Lloyd, or Keaton. Silentology says, The collection is a lucky break for both these films and Alice Howell, and one heck of a blessing for us, quite the steal, and well worth it for the chance to discover a new comedy favorite. DVD Talk rates it, Recommended for serious cinephiles, noting it still evokes chuckles and guffaws with modern audiences. Cinema Crazed writes, It was a real treat seeing how she could stand toe-to-toe with the best of the silent cinema's comedians, and Undercrank Studios manages to offer up a beautiful restoration. What was really exciting to me about the Alice Howell collection is that I launched the Kickstarter, and it was funded eight hours later. I had had a similar experience with the Marion Davies project, but people have heard of Marion Davies. Nobody knows who Alice Howell is. Nobody's seen any of her films. And it showed me that there was an interest in an unknown female comedian, and also that I had done enough of these Kickstarters to build up the goodwill that if I launched something, it didn't matter if nobody's ever heard of it, that, oh, well, Ben and Steve Massa have found something that's really worth checking out. Everybody just dove in and retweeted stuff and got the word out. And it meant that we could go from a single disc of six films to a double disc set. And not only a double disc set, but there was money 
to cover hiring Thad Kamarowski of Cineast Restorations to do image cleanup and stabilization. Some of these films that we've included were lost until around 2015 when they turned up in a 16mm rental house collection that had gone to the Library of Congress. The one that everybody likes is a film called Distilled Love, which was combined from a 35 millimeter element that had hunks of it missing that the Library of Congress had preserved and a 16 millimeter collector's print that was in the hands of a guy named Henry Zorn, who has an amazing collection on that print, got acquired by the Library of Congress and got scanned just in the nick of time because it was really going and they did an amazing job, especially George Willeman and Michael Hinton. Michael Hinton helped save that 16mm print so that it would uncurl and get scanned. And George did an amazing job matching the two prints back together so that they not only lined up, he would cut within a shot from one source to the other smoothly. It's one of the highlights of the set for a lot of people. That's the Alice Howell Collection, available directly from undercrankproductions.com, as well as Amazon, Deep Discount, Walmart, TCM, and nearly everywhere else you can buy classic film. And her her own grandson, George Stevens Jr. We did a show at the AFI Silver Theater, and he came, and some of these films were brand new to his eyes, and it just meant so much to him and to us I hope more of Alice's films turn up. A lot of them are lost, but I think a lot of them may be sitting uh, under the stairs or in an archive mislabeled. And now that everybody knows that face, I expect more of her films will come to light. All right, continuing our saga, Ben, we've got you boiled down your multiple keyboards down to one, but you're doing lots of different voices, and then somebody entered your life? Yeah, a guy named Jim Henry emailed me out of the clear blue. I don't know what he was searching online for, but what caught his eye on my website was the fact that I had a page dedicated to the non-piano instruments that I play, both theater organ and the portable thing that I've been doing with the Kurzweil and also with the synth org where I had a keyboard, keyboard stand and pedals trying to emulate what a theater organ did because at that time in the early 2000s there still really wasn't a way to do that on a keyboard. Some digital keyboards would have a theater organ sound on it but it's just one sound and it wasn't the thing that you could do with an organ would turn lots of different sounds on and off and layer them and mix them and match them the way you do with an organ. If you wanted to have a theater organ in your house, you had to buy a giant piece of furniture instrument that cost a lot of money. It was like buying an Audi and putting it in your living room <laughs> and or in your basement. I live in a New York City apartment. There are some people I know who have, you know, an Allen organ or the George Wright model and they have it in their, their living room or their basement. But I, A, lived in an apartment in New York City and B, I wanted to be able to take this to other places. I don't want to park it in my living room. And Jim, I think, saw I was experimenting with multiple keyboards. I had pedals, was trying to do something with theater organ. And Jim Henry had created a computer program called the Miditzer. If you combine the word MIDI, MIDI is Musical Instrument Digital Interface. It's a computer language for musical instruments that has only had one operating system, yes, as far as I know. 1.0 forever. <laughs> yeah, like an acoustic piano. This has just been MIDI. And so if you combine MIDI with Wurlitzer, you get Miditzer. 
he had contacted me because he saw what I was doing, wanted to let me know about the Minitzer program to see if I was interested. The sounds on it were what were called at the time a sound font, and you can Google that. Again, trying real hard to sound like theater organ ranks and kind of close to it, but had a screen interface where you could, with a mouse, click on the different tab stops and combinations the way you would with a real theater organ. And I thought, oh, this is what I've been looking for, to be able to have a theater organ in my apartment without moving out the bed and the sofa. The trick, of course, with the Minitzer is it only runs on Windows. I found ways around that. I think got a PC tower on Craigslist or something like that, and eventually wound up using a program called Crossover Mac, because I'm a Mac person. Unlike something like Parallels or Boot Camp, where you have to install Windows on your computer, crossover mac and it's still around it's based on linux and it's a windows emulation program and while it's mainly designed like a lot of things for games and gamers it does work with Minitzer. that got me up and running with that sound or something close to it where i could record in my apartment or take this other places and the first show i ever did with the Minitzer was at wesleyan wesleyan university in middletown connecticut where i now teach where I actually brought the Minitzer program and all my presets on a thumb drive and brought my keyboards and pedals and we installed it on a computer there in the theater and loaded it up and it just worked and we ran it through the house sound system and I just remember Janine Basinger coming into the show, I think it was Safety Last, and expecting me to play a piano and here was this theater organ sound coming into the Goldsmith Cinema it just blew her mind and, and it was just really wonderful to get to do this. So I now had this option and it really allowed me to get better at playing the organ and theater organ style. And I'm still working on it. I still don't sound like most of the theater organ players, which may be fine. It may not be. But it, having this tool where I could stick one keyboard under the bed, one behind a file cabinet, and the pedals go over here and the rest of it lives on a laptop. I can now do this, and I scored some films for Kino for a project Jessica Rosner was doing called Real Baseball, R-E-E-L Baseball. And I said, I want to use the Minister for this. And she said, said, what, do you have a a theater organ in your living room? I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, yeah. Uh, so some of the scores on that are done with Minitzer. And that's perfect and for baseball, right? You have to have the Wurlitzer. Re- that's that's the other thing is that a lot of the electric organs, as you've heard on the podcast from when I've been at the AFI Silver Theater, they have one of those electric organs that sound like you're in a ball at a, at a ballpark, and it's a different kind of an instrument and the way it produces sound. Yeah, it was it was fun to get to do it. What we can do now is listen to a clip from a score I recorded for the Lon Chaney film The Penalty. Now, it's currently available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber with a score by the Montalto Motion Picture Orchestra. But up until that re-release happened a few years ago, it was only available on DVD with a score that, as you may recall from previous episodes of this podcast, was one of the ones I saw a lot of people complaining about on forums and which I recorded a score for my AltScore site that people could buy the score, download it, and run it in sync with their DVD. You'll get to hear, it doesn't sound exactly like a theater organ, but a lot more than the synth org did or than the Kurzweil samples do. 
The idea for me was to be able to bring that sound not only to shows and to venues that I could travel to, but to put it out on home video so that people could be reminded that this was the sound of the silent film era and not just a solo piano. So here is a few minutes from my score for Lon Chaney in The Penalty recorded on the Mititzer Virtual Theater Pipe Organ. A few minutes from my 
Virtual Theater Pipe Organ Score performed on the Miditzer software program. And that program kept getting better, and there were new sets of samples that I began using. And one of the nice things that happened with that instrument is that the Cinema Arts Center bought the keyboards and pedals for me to use this. So from, uh, I'm going to say the late aughts, the 2008-2009, that was a place where every month we threw the instrument together, two keyboards and the pedals and my laptop, and people on Long Island got to hear the sound of the theater pipe organ. And I used it a lot at MoMA as well. I think the Arbuckle retrospective that I co-organized with Ron Magliosi and Steve Mass in 2006, I used it for several shows there as well. And I, th I think what we did there is they assigned an IBM ThinkPad that the museum owned as a laptop I would use for the series, which ran for two months. And I loaded the Miditzer onto it and worked with it that way. But it's really helped me change the musical landscape in terms of uh, getting to score things on DVD. It's been nice that more orchestral stuff has been happening and people get to hear things like the scores that Rodney Sauer and the Montalto are doing where you're hearing it's a, maybe a chamber ensemble, but you're hearing the mood cues from the silent film era. But theater organ was kind of absent. And I actually wrote an article for the ATOS magazine back when I was using the Miniature a lot about this. And I interviewed David Shepard, who said part of the challenge with using theater organ for home video releases is that, A, they're really hard to record really properly, so it sounds right. And also, at least at that time, the speaker you had on a television set really didn't reproduce the sound of the theater organ that well. And so it just didn't have as much of an appeal. Whereas I would say in the last five or six years, between the sound systems that either people have or are built into their set or the sound bars that everybody now has for their television, theater organ sounds much, much better. I've also gone over the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years with scoring things for Kino from convincing them to let me use theater organ to being asked, can you do this on theater organ? That's nice. Uh, which, has been, which has really been nice. And the other nice part about it is that people are hearing the instrument. Because I'm able to do this, uh, I've scored stuff not only for DVD, but it's wound up on TCM. So people who watch Silent Sunday Nights occasionally will hear the sound of the theater pipe organ. That's nice. Not everybody likes it, but I, it's, it was important to me to find a way to let fans know that it wasn't just a piano or an orchestra. That there was this other instrument that really was rather prevalent in most theaters because you could install one of these babies in your theater and once you had done that work you only had to hire one musician to play it but you would get this full symphonic sound i should think by the late teens the early 20s that was the default accompaniment you would only hear a piano in, if in a very rural area yeah, if you look at the trade magazines you can find on Media History Digital Library, even from the late teens, you see lots of ads for different brands of pipe organs, the theater pipe organs from Wix and Wurlitzer and Kimball and what have you. And by the mid-20s, it's just off the charts. And so really, that's what you heard. The ironic thing I'm still looking for an answer to is when I talk to people at shows who say, oh, they mention a relative who used to play in movie theaters. It's always a great aunt or a great grandmother or my grandmother, and they played the piano. 
there may very well be a reason why nobody ever says my great-grandfather played the trombone in a, in a cinema orchestra or my uncle played the organ. I, I guess that's just irony. I mean, my theory, and I, I have to look up some definite information, but my feeling is that the professional musicians back in the 20s were all men and there were other music jobs they could go on to. Whereas there weren't opportunities for women to work professionally, uh, certainly as much as musicians. And here they were playing and performing in front of hundreds of people every day. And then when sound came in, they had to go to teaching piano lessons or just playing at home. And that must have meant so much to them to be able to play in a theater to an audience on a regular basis that way. Now, in addition to the authenticity question, mentioning the penalty, and you also mentioned safety last, it seems to me there must be some discrete aesthetic advantages. For instance, the only way, we sort of touched on this before, but the only way a piano maintains a sound is by continuing to strike the key and holding the exactly. pedal down. And you you have a thing called a tremolando where you're playing a chord in two chunks, and, you're, and that's sort of the cliche of silent film accompaniment. Whereas yeah. uh, the organ, it seems to me, and I'm looking for confirmation or denial, uh, would be really good at things like suspense. Oh, yeah, because you can get a lot of mileage just holding down a couple of keys. And plus, because you have a volume pedal or two and a real instrument that would control the swell shades. And these are giant Venetian blinds on either side of the stage in front of each room full of pipes. So you can have a crescendo and decrescendo. Yes, you get a lot out of the not only different tone shadings, but you can hold down a couple of keys and and not have to constantly hit them. The other thing that I found, and this is one of the things I, I enjoy so much about being able to bring that sound to theaters, is that the reaction afterwards and the applause is a much heartier mm -hmm. one. It's not that I am a better organist than I am a pianist, but I've done shows where I played for it once on piano and once on organ, and just the applause at the end of the show is much heartier. And I think there's something more rich and romantic and full about the sound of a theater organ, whether you're full on, got all the reeds going and couplers, or just holding down and having a string rank and a flute rank during a quiet section. It's much more evocative emotionally. Mm -hmm than what you can get. And I think this is probably what I was going for back in 1998-99, sitting at a piano in Titus One at MoMA, hearing oboes and strings while I was playing the Steinway piano in, in the theater, that there was more expression and range of emotion that could be brought to support the film so that the film had a greater and, and more enriching impact to the audience than you could get out of a piano. Sounds like this journey has brought out your inner orchestrator. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I guess so to a certain extent. I've done about 10 scores for silent films for orchestra. I did the orchestrations myself for the first few of them, but for me, it's hell. <laughs> it's like the worst part. And my wife and daughter would move to Mars until I was done writing a score out. <laughs> but then the brilliant thing is that my wife found somebody to do the orchestrations through a friend of hers. Harrison Beck has been orchestrating my orchestral scores for the last three or four or five projects. And he's way better than I am at it. He's a huge fan of silent films, so he loves doing it. And the, the, the charts just sound better now. But the thing that I've been able to do is, as of four or five years ago, when I had a, a good year, shall we say, is I moved up from the Miditzer, which is a free program, to a software called Hauptwerk. 
and a sample set made by Paramount Organ Works. And this is like the big league, higher end, greater memory usage software, but it really, really sounds like a theater organ. And there's actually a number of different sample sets for instruments that you can get the sample set for the Redford Theater in Detroit and a number of other instruments. And that's what I use for recordings and for shows now. But the great thing about the Mititzer, and this is always the idea, is it's something you can download, double-click, it installs, and you're off and running. And it's not memory-intensive. And if you're a Mac person, you just get crossover Mac. It's not that expensive anyway. One of the nice things that they did in Minitzer is that it was originally set up for a single keyboard or you'd have to get it two keyboards. And I said to Jim Henry, I said, I have an 88-note keyboard. Is there a way to split the keyboard in the middle like I was doing with the Kurzweil so I would have one keyboard functioning as left hand and right hand? And he revised the Minitzer ah. program so you could program the split into an 88-note keyboard. The word Minitzer is a much catchier name than Hauptwerk <laughs> and Paramount Organ Works, which has way too many syllables. Aside from a friend of mine, a, a photographer named Steve Freeman, calling what I use the Berlitzer <laughs> um, when I set up the organ to record, you know, Mana, my wife will say, oh, are you using the Minitzer for this? It's not the actual Minitzer, but it's just a snappier name. And until I can come up with something better for digital virtual theater pipe organ, it's going to wind up sticking. And and like I said, the, the minutes are really, when I talk to people at shows or young people who want to find out more about the theater organ, I say, just go home and, and download this. It's not going to max out your system and you'll be up and running immediately and just poke around and get your feet wet on, on the sounds of the theater organ. <laughs> we should ask folks, mail in, uh, email in suggestions for uh, generic terms or virtual theater Pipe organ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the yeah, yeah. Come up Coming with something. Up with, uh, uh, come up with something for that, and if you can come up with something that for silent film that isn't doesn't have the word silent, silent in it, we're, <laughs> I, we're all. I've been thinking about that had, since the last episode. I literally. We've have. all. I've been talking. We've all been talking about this for years, and you always have to drag people past that word because it's so off putting. I find now when I pitch using the instrument at a venue, I, I send pictures. Ah. This is what I'm talking about. Because I say, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Digital samples resides in a laptop, blah, blah. But here's what it looks like. It's five feet by three feet. It fits in the back of a car. It takes me 15 minutes to set up. Do you have a DI box? And it sounds like we've installed a Wurlitzer in your theater. So for recording purposes, do you ever multi-track? Just say lay down a string bed and then go back and now I'm going to play the oboe line so I can really focus on that? Or do you just play it the way you would play it in a theatrical performance? Well, with with the Kurzweil stuff, I, that is exactly how I built all the tracks for the Spiders and for Haldane of the Secret Service using... It might have been GarageBand. I can't even remember. So long ago. It was much easier in some cases to play it that way. But with the theater organ, I do a little multi-tracking. But only if there's a celeste line that I couldn't manage or wanted to add later. Or if there is uh, something that has to sync. I'll play something simple and then go back making sure I'm checking the time code of every frame on the screen and in my audio software and I'll put that drum hit or that accent so it lines up. I don't multi-track with the organ, but I do work in pieces. 
But that speaks well for the flexibility and the ease of use of the organ. Oh, absolutely. I would love to be able to do what I've heard in the recordings that Lee Irwin did for uh, Raymond Rohauer back in the 80s, where he would just sit down at the organ at the Carnegie Hall Cinema. they thread up the double, as they call a 2,000-foot reel, and he would record straight through for 20 minutes and then stop. For an optical sound print, which is what was going to be the end product, you need to have a break in the sound anyway for the changeover. Mm-hmm. But I live for the day that I can sit down and knock out two reels at once. <laughs> and and sometimes I give myself the option, unless I'm playing, oh, I can punch in a couple of notes there where I just messed that up and I found a way to do that. But I, I want to try to go as long as I can. Are you ever tempted to use any of these alternate instruments for the silent comedy watch party? If I was twins and lived in a bigger apartment, absolutely. <laughs> but I've got so much wiring going on already. Uh, being the the television technical director, host, and accompanist, and while troubleshooting things at the same time, I've toyed with the idea, but it's enough to keep the piano in semi-tuned shape as it is. I, I'd love to. I'd love to be able to offer that, but I also realize that people are watching on iPads and laptops And like I was saying before, this goes back to the sound reproduction issue. And unless I know people are watching this on a bigger screen with a sound bar or headphones or home theater audio system, a theater organ is not going to sound that great on a portable device. I'd love to offer that for some of the virtual cinema offerings I'm doing. Mm where I'm doing a a feature film for a particular venue, like I'm doing every month for the Cinema Arts Center and have just done the Cleveland Institute of Arts Cinema Tech, where I'm pumping something live from my living room to other people's homes. But again, because I don't know what it's being listened to on, and because this new medium that I'm exploring is more intimate, the piano, at least for right now, seems like a good match. So Cinema Arts will be monthly? Yes. Okay, that's good. Until they reopen, and even when they reopen, it's going to be limited seating. <laughs> so that's a yeah. so that's kind of a recommendation, and I'm going to use that to bridge. I'm going to recommend something that we've talked about on the show, but we're looking for interesting places to go that aren't going to cost you anything and to see a wonderful silent film and uh, I have two particular places and I will have links uh, to these in the show notes Uh, one is the eye museum oh gosh I know they've been a huge support for the watch party it's phenomenal the depth of that collection and the other is the National Film Preservation Foundation which has an extraordinary depth of material online yeah, their screening room is just so full of stuff, and it's all good transfers, and it looks great. And a lot of the silence have new scores by Michael Mortilla or me, so you're not watching something in dead silence all the time. This has been the Silent Film Music Podcast, episode 39. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm joined, as always, by co-producer and co-host Kerr Lockhart. And I want to say to listeners, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate us and review us. Please rate us highly. But it really does help uh, other people find the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you know somebody who might find this interesting send the links along you really appreciate that i'm your host ben modell silent film accompanist i thank you for listening i'll be seeing you